the lie that poetry tells is constant as the truth itself without the lies and the false beliefs where would we be where would we be welcome to the state of the theory podcast i'm hannah and i'm an india and we are your theory doctors Hello. Hello. Welcome back. We are in week 10. Episode 10. Yes. And what are we going to talk about today? Today we are talking about the Panama Papers. This is going to be a two-parter. We're going to start um, this week. We're focusing on whistleblowing and the idea of leaking either classified or sensitive documents to the public online. Next week, we're going to focus a little bit more on that super interesting topic of taxes and taxation, and that'll come up a little bit today, but today we're really going to talk about whistleblowing and whistleblowers. And the politics of whistleblowing and the way in which certain kinds of personality cults have grown up around individual whistleblowers over the last few years. Yes. So do you want to say a bit about, I'm sure most of our listeners know, but but for those who don't, what the Panama Papers are? Yeah, the Panama Papers are the largest leak online so far. Huge in comparison to the volume of data that was leaked either by Chelsea Manning or by Edward Snowden and The Guardian. Um, Huge amount of information from the law firm and business company in Panama, um, Masak Fonseca. And it's a company that is based in Panama, but that has franchises in various countries around the world. And they specialize in creating offshore shell companies for various organizations, corporations, individuals, to store their hard-earned dollars. Ill-gotten gains. Ill-gotten gains um, in places where they won't have to pay any taxes on them. And this has definitely sparked an, an online debate and discussion, certainly in Europe. And, and partly, partly because of the geographical spread of rich and famous people involved. So, you know, we we have the British Prime Minister and and his family. We've had uh, the Russian president. We've had famous Bollywood actors and uh, various people in between. An important exception for the moment is America and Americans. But we are promised, uh, as we speak today, that there will be more leaks concerning American investors. Yes. What's interesting in the Guardian how-to understand the Panama Papers article, they have a number of graphics that show kind of the scale of the leak and also the geographic distribution of the various parties involved. What's very interesting is that the U.S. has relatively less involvement compared to smaller places like the U.K. The U.K.'s connection to the Panama Papers is fascinating because it is so disproportionately high. And you've just got back from the U.S. I have. 
Um, so you are wonderfully jet lagged. Wonderfully jet lagged. I've been back less than twelve hours. Um, and you noticed a difference in media coverage on this story between America and here. Yes, actually, shout out to um, a Facebook friend who first kind of noticed this. He's been posting a lot. An American friend who's based in in California who's been posting regularly about the Panama Papers um, and making it very clear that the U.S. media, mainstream media, has been less interested in the Panama Papers than perhaps they should be, which is an interesting contrast given how interested European and British papers have been in the topic. It will be interesting to see if the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Boston Globe get on board with this story after American names have been made public. So following on, on from that, I guess one of the things that occurs to me is to wonder to what extent the relationship between the media of a particular nation state and individuals or organizations from that nation state being involved. What is the correlation between those two? In other words, you you mentioned on The Guardian, which is a British newspaper, it being obvious how overrepresented British individuals are in this this whole story. And I wonder which way the, the causation works. So is the fact that the British media is interested in this story because Britain is overrepresented? Or does Britain seem to be overrepresented because we are reading it on British media? It's possible. The Guardian was using data Hmm. from the leaks um, in order to show the various involvement. There is, however, a huge interest on the Guardian and other other websites, I think more so on the Guardian, interestingly, rather than more conservative news sources, in the involvement of non-British individuals and companies. There's been, well, today there was the the Chinese elite splashed across the front page of the Guardian website. Putin was the first face, I think, um, the Russian president um, and is there a difference, have you noticed, in the way The Guardian, for example, um, represents the foreign involvement versus British involvement? Yeah, well, I think there's, I mean, there's there's obviously less kind of media surprise at somebody like um, Nawaz Sharif in Pakistan, for example, as opposed to David Cameron. There was kind of a somewhat of a sort of surprise that David Cameron's father has been named in these leaks, whereas Nawaz Sharif, part of a, a Pakistani elite, you know, part of a long tradition of American and Western European newspapers painting the Pakistani government as being corrupt and that being the source of all of their problems, right? Um, similar coverage of the Indian government and the Chinese government and the Russian government, that corruption is is embedded in their system, whereas in our system, corruption is an anomaly and should be rooted out. Um, Of course, the Panama Papers show a network. They're showing a network of capital and powerful individuals that is 
transnational in I think the the purest sense of that that term um and for us there's not much that's surprising yeah but the the british media has latched on to its old tropes of defining various players in the usual ways yeah so corruption is something that happens abroad and, and specifically yeah. in the post-colonial world yes. yeah. um that unintended and sad legacy of yes. colonialism yes you mentioned in passing Chelsea Manning and Edward Snowden as two other recent examples of whistleblowing leaking yes do you want to say a bit more about how these two yes these three cases combine Chelsea Manning in the United States through WikiLeaks with the assistance of Julian Assange um leaked a number of classified military documents showing and sharing military information about specifically about US military abuses of human rights and international law in Iraq and Afghanistan and other parts of the world those documents were leaked via wikileaks um and chelsea manning was subsequently arrested and um treated in a variety of ways by the media but treated quite terribly and um and then of course sentenced to prison via military court in the united states she is a trans woman it was made clear during her trial that she was a trans woman and she was outed at her trial and then subsequently in the media and she is quite active as active as as a person in prison can be on social media and she has written a number of columns for the Guardian newspaper and makes the news every once in a while she's particularly interesting i think because she's a she's unique and the, that leak i think has less in common with the edward snowden leak um edward snowden was a former um contractor he was hired by a company or hired as part of a company by the nsa um to participate in the surveillance of um online activity and he leaked via the guardian um his contact glen greenwald a number of documents having to do with government surveillance um broad government surveillance and the guardian reported on this story and continues to report on this story edward snowden was the topic of a recent documentary that won an academy award it's very well known this particular set of documents and snowden himself he is of course currently in russia have you seen the john oliver interview with edward yes. snowden yes. yes yes that's yeah i think if for those of you who haven't seen it that is probably my favorite media coverage yeah. of snowden and of government surveillance we'll put the youtube link in yes. the comments there is an interesting way in which for all their differences on these two cases as you point out are very different there is a commonality i think in the way in which 
both mainstream media and alternative online sources have built up a personality cult surrounding the individual whistleblower, Chelsea Manning or, or Edward Snowden. And both of the, these figures are set up as other in some way. So Chelsea Manning is set up as other through her trans identity and Edward Snowden is set up as other because he's the geek who sort of doesn't get on with anyone. And of course they're both physically othered now as well, you know, one's in prison, the other's in, in Russia. And so far at least we don't have an individual name, an individual identity associated with the Panama Papers leak. Is there any meaning to that difference, do we think? Yes. I think partly the, we've talked about this a lot, partly the content is different. When we're talking about the Panama Papers, there is already an interest cultivated, ironically, by the, the government in the particular kinds of activities that are being leaked, that are being illuminated and highlighted by the Panama Papers, and that is tax evasion. And there is a whole kind of discourse that already exists in the mainstream media about tax evasion and tax dodging. And there is already a public will, a public perception or understanding that has been framed by the media and by the government around this particular activity that can be easily understood. The revelations in the Snowden documents, the NSA files, were a bit more abstract. The process by which government surveillance happens, the, the technological process, and also the legal process, was is very technical, and it's subject to a lot of jargon that people don't understand, and the process by which it happens is difficult for people to understand. And what I love about the John Oliver interview with Edward Snowden is that he makes the case that that is why people didn't care, yeah. that that we need to use language that people can understand so that they become outraged at the information in the way that people have become outraged about the information contained in the Panama Papers. It needs to exist in a particular discursive frame or language that people can understand and that can be disseminated easily via various news sources online. Which which was one of the problems with the Chelsea Manning leaks through WikiLeaks because WikiLeaks are much less able to provide that accessibility that either The Guardian or The Spiegel or whatever other mainstream media source that we might think of. Exactly. The Manning leaks were fascinating because the government, the US government, was able to come out and Hillary Clinton was the Secretary of State at the time. That's I think that is important and relevant here. Um, the US government was able to come out and say, without any real opposition on the part of WikiLeaks or Chelsea Manning, that the leaks were dangerous, that they had jeopardized the security of Americans and American military personnel abroad. 
and that there was a direct link between the leaks and a greater risk to the United States. They then, you know, the government then backtracked, and of course it has been made clear by various media sources and others that in fact those leaks did not endanger any personnel, and Chelsea Manning has made it clear that she herself was very aware of the risks associated um, with the leaks. And, but there wasn't a concrete set of documents and information pulled from that leak that could then be turned back to the government and said, no, look, look what you're doing. You're firing on journalists and aid workers. You're doing illegal things. You're breaking international law. You yourself are putting Americans at risk. And so there wasn't an infrastructure there for the information in the leaks to be put to use, to be put to work. They were just there. They just sat online. Um, In a way, certainly, that I think that the Guardian learned from that. The Guardian specifically learned a lesson from the WikiLeaks leak. Um, when Edward Snowden came to them with his documents. And so they, they milked the Snowden documents, um, to the point where for us liberals, it got to the point where they probably should have been reporting on other news. Um, but they drip fed that information so that, that the public could understand how the government was doing its work, but still that information got lost in favor of that one photograph of Edward Snowden on the front of every newspaper. Every time there was a discussion about the NSA leaks, it was always Edward Snowden's face attached to it. And there was still an inability to understand the process by which government surveillance happens. There was also this this weird sense of the individual whistleblower being stuck. So do you remember that sort of for days and days Edward Snowden was stuck in Moscow Airport where yeah. he he couldn't get into Russia and he couldn't leave. And you know, famously Julian Assange has been stuck in the Ecuadorian embassy in London for years now. And and there was a lot made, I think, on on the part of both the left and the right, uh, in, in discussing this about the precarious existence of someone who has either chosen to betray their country or chosen to take a courageous stand against the excesses of their country's government. You know, hero or traitor. Yes. The tropes are quite interesting, Um, especially because we are dealing with human beings who are who are neither, you know, good or evil. Um, Julian Assange very famously has been accused by multiple women of sexual assault, triggering an international agenda to have him arrested and extradited and tried for sexual assault. It would be nice if more of those individuals were extradited and tried for sexual assault. Yeah. But there was an interesting application of 
of that law with regard to Julian Assange. I think, it's, I think it would be fair to say that international gov- governments around the world have not always shown the same zeal in prosecuting men charged with sexual assault. Yeah, it would be nice if, if they showed some more consistency, yeah. I would say, yeah. with regard to... Yeah. Yeah. But it's... But it is interesting. Um, Snowden, as well, there were all those articles about his girlfriend yeah. flying out to be with him yeah. and not being able to, and his mom, and and the the content of the the documents themselves got lost. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's not to say they didn't have an effect. Yeah. They yeah. they did have some effect in terms of changing and altering some legislation in the U.S. And there is. Um, greater interest in in circumventing or dealing with government surveillance. Yeah. Um, but I think the story of Edward Snowden has been more interesting to many people yeah. than the story of the person who leaked the Panama Papers at this point. We know nothing about that person. We don't, If yet. there is a person. And there hasn't even been a huge amount of speculation, as far as I've seen. Not in the media. Yeah, about where this information has come from and how it has arrived in the public domain, as it were. But I wanted to go back briefly to this point you made about one of the effects of Snowden's story specifically being that it has led to certain changes in legislation and the the legal position, because uh, Glenn Greenwald, obviously, famously, the, the journalist Edward Snowden worked with, has recently written this article on The Intercept. Which is his blog. Which is his blog, where he describes the legalization that allows the things that Snowden revealed and the things that the Panama Papers reveal to be technically legal, certainly according to the government's definition of the laws. In other words, in both cases, the system has worked in order to legalize these acts of surveillance or these acts of tax evasion. And in this very well-written article, Greenwald talks about this as a failure of democracy or rather a subversion of democracy insofar as it then allows democracy to be, he says, typically controlled by society's wealthiest. How do we feel about that position? I think that is the standard left position. Um, There is great opposition to the practice of tax evasion, especially on the part of corporations. I think right now, in particular, there is great animosity among liberals towards corporations that do not pay their taxes. And even among emerging liberals, I know a lot of my students um, speak a lot about corporation tax and... um, how easy it is for corporations to avoid paying the tax that they might owe based on calculations yeah. of, of individual income tax, for example. Um, and so there is already, and I think there has been since the beginning of taxes, there has been a belief among the left that taxes should be paid fairly. Yeah. Greenwald talks about this as an aberration of democracy. Yeah, he does. And I think we we ourselves would agree with that. But I think that there is, because it is technically legal, yeah. and because the states that we live in profess to be democratic states, yes. which is a, a 
a position that we ourselves have challenged before in other episodes of this podcast. That therefore, because they are the laws, they are part of a democratic system. And there are definitions, um, particularly by famous neoliberals and neoliberal economists throughout the 20th century, in particular the kind of 1970s, that the purpose of the democratic state is to facilitate the neoliberal market because the neoliberal market is the teleological end point of democracy, that neoliberalism is democracy at its purest because it allows for the individual economic actor, Foucault's homo economicus, an ideal that we have talked about before in the context of Wendy Brown, the philosopher. Um, but the neoliberal system is is designed for homo economicus, the economic agent, to pursue the the achievement and then development of his or her own wealth. And they should do so by any means possible. Obviously including the evasion of paying taxes. You keep more of your money if you are not paying it back to the state for the purposes of redistribution. So for people who believe that the democratic state's purest purpose is to facilitate and apply the rules of the neoliberal game. This is therefore just part of the mechanism of the neoliberal state. It's um, undoing borders. It's undermining the, the ability of borders to restrict the free flow of capital, right? This is, this is the state at work, how it should be. But then we come back to the question of, if this is how the state should operate, why is it that there is so much opposition to it and why has there been so much secrecy? Why is the fact that this is a leak important, that this is secret information that is embarrassing and sensitive and dangerous and career killing, right? The prime minister of Iceland has resigned over this and there presumably will be more to follow. So there is an interplay here between this kind of neoliberal role of the state and what you and I and Glenn Greenwald might call the democratic role of the state. In other words, I think there is a sense that even even under the current flawed versions of democracy, the, the agents of the state, the powers that be, feel the need to hide what they would otherwise logically consider as normal. And the reason they have to hide it is that there is an awareness deep down that part of their power rests on electoral success. Yes. And it, that's the moment when the the democratic state as the ultimate form of neoliberal power comes into conflict with the democratic state, which depends on winning the next elections. Yes. Or the democratic government, rather, winning, winning the next elections. Yes. So, um, certainly uh, on social media, 
um, the the announcement of the Icelandic Prime Minister resigning was accompanied with shots of public protests in Iceland, clearly establishing a causal connection between the people power as demonstrated through the protests and the fact that the Prime Minister had to resign. And there, there's lots of questions about why this, the same thing is not happening in Britain, for example. For for all of democracy's flaws, and we've discussed democracy in the, in the current form, and as you say, we've discussed that uh, in, in previous episodes, they are, they still fear it. They still they still feel the need to um, try to convince the people that they are not doing things they shouldn't be doing. Exactly. Yeah. What's interesting, I think, as you're speaking, I'm thinking specifically of um, all roads lead back here, and it's deeply unfortunate that I'm saying that. I can't really believe that I am. I'm thinking of Donald Trump. And that's unfortunate in and of itself. Um, But I'm thinking of Donald Trump because Donald Trump straddles both of these. And it may very well come out that Donald Trump harbors some of his money in offshore accounts. Right. That would that would not be terribly surprising, surprising, you know, Um, although I'm not. (laughs) I'm not convinced that he is necessarily good enough of a businessman to know to to do that. that. But I'm sure he has better businessmen in his employ. You'd hope, but he but he is well known for actually losing money, for yes, not being good at playing yeah. this neoliberal yeah. game, for yeah. actually being quite bad at playing the yeah. neoliberal game, yes. which is relatively funny because he, he is bad at it, so he has gone the other side to try and gain electoral power yes. Yes. because his economic yes. neoliberal power is, has not been yes. sufficient. Um, and so he is he gains a lot of traction by claiming to be the representative of the people in this yeah. electoral dem- democratic sense, um, while, of course, harboring huge amounts of unearned wealth. Um, yes. But what's, what's quite fascinating about the U.S. case is its sort of different position mm. with regard to the Panama Papers. And maybe it is that it's just because no one has been named yet. yet. But there's another another set of papers the, that you've mentioned yes. about the U.S. and the U.S. presidential election mm. at stake. This is your, your case. So. Uh, uh, I don't know about that. So this <laughs> is the D.C. Madam story. So for those of you who don't know, this story dates back to... About 10 years ago, maybe slightly more. Maybe more. Maybe more. Um, uh, This particular escort agency stroke brothel run by uh, a woman called Deborah Jean Palfrey, who became known as the DC Madam. And she apparently kept fairly meticulous records of the various politicians, civil servants public servants, government officials, famous people who were her clients in this D.C. brothel, Washington D.C. brothel. And this story happened, and as far as anyone was aware, this story had run its course and was not particularly relevant, except in in particularly specific examples. So um, the recent Louisiana governor election 
this came up again because the the Republican candidate was had been exposed as a client, and uh, his Democratic opponent brought it up and made it a big thing in the in the election campaign. Anyway, this story has come back into the news now because the DC Madam's lawyer, whose name is Montgomery Blair Sibley, wonderful name, he alleges that he has access to the rest of the DC Madam's records, phone records, uh, of more than 800 Washington insiders. And he th- this, this entire record body uh, has been placed under a court order. So he is stopped by this court order from revealing anything about the records. And he has just applied to the Supreme Court to have this gag order removed because he says there is information there that is of direct relevance to the presidential election. Implication being that at least one, if not more, of the presidential candidates were clients of the DC madam. Um, he won't say any more. He won't say how it's relevant. Uh, but he has said that if the court refuses him, refuses to um, rev- withdraw the gag order, he will release it anyway. Um, so he has gained a fair bit of publicity through that as well. Um, in other words, this is this is another moment of this the this example that we've been talking about uh, of the state as protector of neoliberal power coming into collision with the state as dependent on electoral success. And um, this is a moment when that comes into collision because, of course, the only reason anybody cares about the story is that it is of direct relevance to the presidential election. Otherwise, it would not be an issue at all. Exactly. What I find interesting as well is with the Panama Papers in particular, they are about individuals and they are about individuals who the public feels like they know. I mean, Simon Cowell is the the kind of picture, the poster boy for this, but, you know, there's tons of people. And what's interesting is the politicians in particular come out as being unclearly representatives either of the state or of themselves as individuals. And so it's not really clear here if David Cameron is a part of this story as David Cameron, the son of a super rich dude, or David Cameron, the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. And that isn't clear because the relationship between wealthy individuals, corporations, and the state is inherently murky in the context of this neoliberal democratic state, what it, how the institution operates. And so it, it becomes this sort of self-destructing system whereby the state is designed or supposedly, ideally, the, the arbiter of the rules of the economic game. But it can only operate when it is operated by the players of that same economic game. And so it doesn't, it doesn't end up working. It sort of eats itself in a sense. Is that murkiness distinct from the 
murkiness surrounding the revelations of Snowden or Manning. Particularly the Snowden revelations, the individuals involved were not mm. were not the topic. Mm. Mm. It was the state as in its entirety, the state yeah. as a force. Yeah. Um, the state as a set of institutions with a a particular kind of power. Yeah. And that was the power to read your emails, yeah. essentially. Whereas and, and that's a difficult that's a difficult concept to grasp, yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, it sets the state up more clearly as the, the source of what were characterized as problems. Yes. And the problem was an overreaching or an overstepping of authority. The movement from democracy to authoritarianism, that was the, yes. that was the narrative that The yes. Guardian produced. Yes. Um, which is a more clear-cut yeah. narrative yeah. than the one of David Cameron's dad keeping a ton of money in a shell company offshore and not paying tax for 30 years. In the sense of, is it the state's fault? Is the state responsible for this? Well, presumably if the state can read your emails, then the state knows if you've taken money abroad. Well, the state also... Tells you, yes. do that. Yeah. <laughs> the British government is, the British government prides itself on its yes. low corporation tax. Yes. As does the, you know, the Irish government is very yes. similar. Yes. They pride themselves on their low corporation tax because it means that companies will want to come here and do their business here. Yes. You know, that's yes. the, that is the, the justification. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, I mean, it does, there, there's the, the farce element to it, of course. It does sort of make a mockery of the idea of the benefits grounder. Yes, yes. Um, and we'll, we'll talk much more in, in next week's episode about the contrast in terms of movement of capital. Yes. Economic capital across, across borders and the movement of human capital across borders and uh, how, how the state treats those two things in very different ways. I think we might be done. Yeah. I think we've... Covered it? We've covered how we feel about this particular story. Yeah. I mean, I think what I've, what I've learned is that I have been holding my money in the wrong place. Yes. Under my mattress is not the spot no. for my money. And you know the NSA is listening to this podcast, so now you've said oh, yeah. that they, they know you've got the money under your mattress. Under my mattress. Yes. Actually, no, they, they, I'm sure they know where it is. It's... It's in a British bank. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, um, assuming the British bank survives. Which is yeah, that, well, that's, that's... I didn't think of that. Yeah. Yes. Well, thanks, thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. Um, as usual, tweet at us and uh, let us know your thoughts and send us your reviews and comments. And we will catch you next week. Bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode. I have been Hannah Fitzpatrick. And I have been Anindya Richardry. You can contact me on Twitter at Dr. H. Fitz. And me at Dr. Anindya R. Our music was provided by the Agrarians, and this has been State of the Theory. Thank you.